Welcome to the Postscript, ladies and gentlemen. The Postscripts. So, what have you been up to lately, Thomas? Uh, What have I been up to lately? That's a good question. Nothing good, I presume. Well, um, I have been visiting my family in the north of Norway, which was pleasant. The weather was quite nice, actually. Wow. And, um, yeah, it's a place suitable for nice walks in the nature. That's basically what you do Amazing. Yeah. Truly. Yeah, that's my holiday. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yourself, what have you been up to? Well, I've been reading a lot, continuing with Thomas Mann, and uh, I've also started reading uh, a Charles Dickens book, which is really funny. Yeah. The Old Curiosity Shop, I'm not sure if you've read it. No, actually, uh, he's one of the authors that I haven't gotten to yet, but I'm quite curious. It looks like a lot of fun. He 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 really is a lot of fun. Uh, Like story-wise, it's often kind of predictable, and and the characters are quite two-dimensional. But it's really fun, and it's written really, really deliciously. Like Mm. the the language is so nice. But also, even though the characters are two-dimensional, they're really, really good. Yeah, like they're really good two-dimensional characters. Like uh, in the old curiosity shop, the sort of the bad guy in the book is this this dwarf named Quilp, and he's just so <laughs> hilariously evil okay. and and horrible. He's like he's tricked this young beautiful woman into being his wife, and he's just constantly berating her and hitting her and hitting her and just terrorizing her. And he has this assistant who's he's constantly like hitting and and assaulting and like verbally abusing. And he's like he's conspired to take over this old man's curiosity shop and like drive them out and and uh, take his riches and he's just he's just so wonderfully bad. He's described like in ways he's like superhuman. He like when he eats breakfast he'll chew his uh, cutlery so hard he bends them <laughs> and he like he just eats whole prawns shell and all and he's just he's just this horrible person and he's he's so delightfully like uh, like demonic. It's it's really it's really fun. Quilp is a great name for a character. Yeah, and and you know he him being a dwarf and it's like it's all so exaggerated and delicious. I really like it. Um, of course, the book in general, like I, I really like Charles Dickens. I've read a lot of, of him. I wouldn't say it's the greatest literature, but it's it's fun. It's good entertainment and it's very well written at times. Mm. Some of it is good literary too, but I don't. Know. So, what's this book about? What's like the? Well, it's about an old, old curiosity shop. Uh, as is in the title, but basically Quilp tries to, well, the owner of this curiosity shop has this uh, beautiful daughter and they're quite poor, but people think they're rich. People think that he's a miser and he has a lot of money put Mm. away. Mm. So they try to conspire to get his money and eventually they do uh, because um, the owner of the curiosity shop has gambled away what little money he had because he, he gambled to sort of give the daughter more money. So he lost that money and then Quilp, as his debtor, Sort of takes over his estate and mm. and uh, yeah, trouble ensues. He's kind of the villain then. Yeah, he's he's the villain. He's the bad. Mm. like there's multiple horrible sorted characters. But who's who's the hero? Who's the uh... well, uh, sort of the the daughter, mm. uh, sort of the owner of the curiosity shop. The sort of what you call it the teller of the tale sort of is a character too but he's only the narrator. brief yeah the nar- narrator is briefly part of the the tale himself mm. uh, meeting 
the daughter and being taken to the curiosity shop. And the heroes might be Kit, uh, who is a, a like a friend of the daughter and friend of the family, and he's sort of this young uh, up and coming lad hmm. that has a lot of good qualities. Yeah. You think he's likely to save her out of that situation? I don't know. I haven't finished reading it, but he sure does seem like the type. Uh-huh. I uh, predict that things will go well as yeah. they usually do in Charles Dickens. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Because he he used to write these uh, zines. Is that what you call it? These well, um, most of his books were mon- in monthly installments. Yeah. Um, so you could read them in like magazines, and yeah. that's sort of how he wrote. Later, they they, they were put into like books, yeah. book format. But he wrote by the page, I think, yeah. paid by the page or paid by the word count. Quite popular at this time. Oh yeah, he was extremely popular. Yeah. Still is mm. like uh, a lot of his characters and stuff are, are become like mainstay character tropes, like uh, Scrooge, yeah, the miserly old, old jerk. He's a great character. Yeah, or like uh, the artful Dodger. Like all these characters, like people know them still. It's quite funny how Scrooge became a Disney character because they did the Christmas adaptation of uh, a Christmas Carol, which I remember I saw when I was a kid. It had a VHS, and I quite liked it actually. Yeah, it's not a bad adaptation. Uh, like the the story in itself is kind of cool. Yeah, uh, like with the ghosts and and the stuff. Um, like the characters are interesting. The the stuff about little Timmy and stuff is a bit too sentimental mm, for my taste. Yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So they so they just made the Scrooge character. They just took him from that adaptation, and he became like a mainstay for yeah, like it's, the dumb. It's literally, that character just made into. Uh, they gave him a new backstory eventually, yeah. but but the. The character traits are still the same, like super miserly, mm. uh, just amassing wealth for no other reason than mm. having it. Like, really quite a terrible person. Yeah. Sort of uh, made into a better character in, in Disney. Yeah, because they had these, um, oh, was it Charles, I almost said Charles Barkley, that's not right. Uh, <laughs> they did a series of comics about his uh, his youth growing up. Yeah, that's Don Rosa, I think. Don Rosa, um, okay. Did that. Those were quite nice, I seem to recall. Yeah, they were they were cool. I think him and and what's this other the other guy, um, Charles Barkley, <laughs> <laughs> the round mound of rebound also, also drew a lot of Disney. <laughs> Carl Barks, yeah, <laughs> almost Charles Barkley. Yeah. Uh, he's great. He's he's my favorite uh, Disney sort of uh, illustrator. Mm. Super like the he just draws the funniest characters, mm. the funniest faces. Super cool. But a lot of Charles Dickens stuff is actually really good. I think Bleak House is probably like his most uh, literary book. Mm. Tell us to Citizens is also quite... Uh, yeah, those two are probably like most renowned as like literature. They have a bit of like the, the social commentary that goes into depth. Yeah, definitely. Like That's probably his like biggest achievement is sort of illuminating the, the plight of the lower classes in England, mm. which during the Victorian era and, and before they just had a terrible time with the poor houses and, and everything. Children working, slaving away, beggars, etc., mm. etc. Et so that's great. But but I also just love the descriptions of London in that time. Like mm. so, he paints a picture really well. So it's well worth reading, just for the vocabulary alone. I think mm. it's great stuff. Yeah, you've been reading anything lately? Uh, yeah, I brought with me Silmarillion from the North of Norway. I have most of my Tolkien books in Buddha because I read them at that age. Yeah, and. Um, so I'm reading up on that again, having a nice time, uh, listening to the uh, Talking Professor podcast, which we've yeah, talked yeah. about extensively before. Of and course, I'm, I've started uh, listening to that again. I'm uh, like three-fourths 
parts through with uh, the history of Middle Earth, which is a gigantic podcast yeah. series. I mean, yeah, there's, there's so many episodes there, but it's still rewarding to listen to them. Um, and I, I just actually found a YouTube channel. I uh, can't remember what it was called, but this 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 guy who draws out these quite basic maps of Middle Earth just with paint. It looks, it's very simple, and it talks about the history. And it just shows where things have moved about on the maps, which just makes things a bit more clear. Where were all the different clans of dwarves? How do they move about? And uh, True nerd stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, hardcore it's, nerd stuff. It's it's like to me, it's like the the world building work of Tolkien that's interesting because having so much of the narrative obscured, I mean, it's there, but it's not explicit. The way you deal with a spectator is like you're not holding hands and you're not, the spectator isn't holy in a sense. You kind of... No, but um, the spectator is also limited in the interaction with the world. But I think the world building of Tolkien is often lauded separately from his literature, which I I think is wrong because Mm. the two are so linked. Mm. Like the way he he uses world building is tied so closely with the way he writes Mm. books. So like the Lord of the Rings would not have existed without the extensive world building. Yeah, yeah, it's an extension of that. Yeah. Well, otherwise, I've been reading a um, pretty good book. Let me just get the title of that. It's a non-fiction book. Well, the Art of the Deal, is that the... <laughs> How did you know? That's the, that's the only Well, I've yeah. just mentioned it because it's my favorite book. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. You know, we have so many things in common. Yeah, I just love deals. Deal making is probably yeah. the most important thing in my life. Yeah, and being a good deal. Yeah, being a sweet deal for the potential investor. Yeah, person as a deal. Yeah. Yeah, it's called, um, it's a non-fiction book. It's called National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy by Roger Eatwell and Matthew Goodwin. Those are two good names, Eatwell and Eatwell Goodwin. Eatwell is a very good name for yeah. a sort of uh, social liberalism critique. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, they look at the, like the, how national populism has gained prominence in the later years. And they look at a lot of statistics in terms of who are voting, why are they voting, and they're kind of looking to debunk a few myths. It's quite interesting. For example, um, one of the things they talk about is, is the idea of racism as the racist voter who's against immigrants. And one of the things that they point out is that society today is a lot less racist than it used to be. And they look at different statistics in terms of how people would answer questions you know, 50 years ago and how they would answer it today. For example, how do you feel about a member of your family marrying a person of another ethnic group? And that used to have a lot more negative connotations before. And it has a lot less today, even among like these groups typically associated with voting for Donald Trump and for Brexit and that sort of stuff. So in some sense, it's not as explicitly about racism, although it is definitely about the fear of immigration. And they're quite interested in that, how the fear of immigration hasn't been taken seriously by the liberal politicians and how a lot of the decisions that have been made because i mean the idea is that a lot of voters they feel dejected they feel like their vote doesn't count and they're quite uh, angry about the situation continuously getting worse decade after decade and like there's a lot of things i hadn't thought about so clearly but for example the eu was introduced into a lot of countries not explicitly through votes by its public kind of shoved down their throat a little bit and they had mixed feelings about that 
and the feelings of EU aside, the concept of, you know, politicians taking big decisions for society and not leaving it up to the people creates a dissonance that starts like this sense of dejection uh, of the people. Well, I'd say the sort of difficult to understand decision-making process and parliamentarism of the EU mm. is one of the main criticisms most people have against it. Like, how does it even work? It's mm. so complicated with so many different like uh, instances and, and like um, different places where decisions are made, uh, where legislation is made, who is voted in, who is sort of chosen. Like, everything is just so esoteric, um, that I think the regular man and woman on the street just don't really fully understand it. And stuff you don't fully understand that has control over you, it's easy to criticize it and to be alienated by it. Yeah. You know, it's quite interesting. I was thinking about how different countries related to the recession, you know, Iceland did a really good job in terms of just saying, no, we're not going to pay the money that you people say that we're owed. We're going to build our own country. And it worked out well for Iceland. Whilst a lot of other countries who were kind of pressured into economic deals and inflation situations. National debt. National debt. They've been struggling really hard to cope. And uh, it's kind of like a, an escalating situation in small steps that just alienate a lot of people. And um, that, I mean, it's not weird that they would go towards a populist vote. Of course, populism doesn't have to be towards the right. It can be towards the left as well. But <laughs> the left doesn't really allow for the more progressive politics to grow forward in the same way that the right has allowed for like the extreme right populists to take place. Well, like, particularly in the UK and uh, the US. Yeah, but also France and, and other countries. Uh, I mean, they're, qu- they're quite Eurocentric in this in this book, but it's, it's very interesting. They look at s- statistics and they discuss it uh, in different ways. Um, well, central to populism is all, always this sort of instrumentation of fear, hmm. playing on fear has been sort of a general theme of populist throughout history. And I think it's interesting in these times, this day and age, where we understand less and less about how society works, mm. especially how economic mm. issues work. Like everything is so up in the air and everything is getting more and more complicated. Like we understand less and less about how the internet works, algorithms, stuff mm. like that. Mm. Everything is so like difficult to grasp. And I think in, in such a climate, you can easily gravitate towards somebody with easy answers and sort of uh, playing on fear. And like, I think it's sadly a, a very good climate for the rise of populists uh, today. Like it's, it's disconcerting. But it can also be positive populism, like workers' rights and higher wages. Those have also traditionally been like populist. And you do see certain populist parties around the world uh, using things like um, increasing the lower wage and stuff. And Well, populism is also like linked to revolutions and stuff. And you can see mm. in, in Belarus today mm. how populism is going against the sort of uh, mm. the tyranny of the dictatorship, mm. if you will. Dictator by any other name. So yeah, I agree. It's not necessarily... Uh, just just a bad thing. Mm. But populism is this instrument you can use to very sinister ends, mm. I think. Another thing they, they talk about is the um, idea that a lot of people who, who vote populist are poor or deplorables, as, as uh, Hillary Clinton uh, famously said. And 
one of the things that they point out is that it's not necessarily dependent upon what kind of economic situation you're in, but it's the relative perception of your economy and how you are faring in society. So if your idea is that you as a group are declining, and that can have to do with immigration, like the feeling that there's a lot of people coming into the country, taking the jobs and that sort of stuff, there's a threatening force. But also, you know, like uh, automatization of jobs and big companies have political power and uh, this creates a lot of tension. Um, that's an interesting read, I thought. Yeah, yeah that, sounds, that sounds very interesting. Where do you call the book? Yeah. National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. You're considering becoming a populist? You know, workers' rights do interest me. And it interests me a lot that things like the Labour Party in England and in Norway, we have Arbeide Partia, which is our Labour Party. They're not working for the Labour people anymore. The names are just historic placeholders in a way. And the people who, who do champion raising wages and giving control to people, you know. Unionism uh, and yeah. stuff like that. They are often just declared as extreme left, whilst they are the kind of thing that used to be normal politics in a sense. How everything's been shifted so far to the right that the normal has become a weird or an extreme Yeah, I think that's sort of a result of capitalism moving in the direction it has Mm. and and of global economy has sort of shifted the traditional norms of labor movements and parties uh, into being quite centrist. In a sense, they are also catering to the industries, right? Mm. And industries has been less and less focusing on workers' rights Mm. and more and more on gaining capital Mm. and uh, pleasing shareholders. Yeah, and it's interesting how so much of the rhetoric is kind of twisted away from their original meaning to become like a tool. Yeah, it's sad, actually. When uh, stuff like unionism and Mm. and stuff is used to demonize, like terms like that, Mm. ideas like that are used to demonize, people just want more control over their work. You know, there's a really interesting situation about unions in America right now. Because one of the unions that is very strong, one of the few that's still really powerful, is the police union. Right. And they're very connected politically and they protect their workers. In a very sense, well. Yeah, I mean, in a sense that's, uh, in fact, dangerous. There's no way to hold police people accountable almost. I mean, there's been some cases lately, but that's mostly because of there's immense pressure in society and months upon months of demonstrations. Yeah, but even so, I think most of the repercussions for the people involved in these mm. things... It's mostly for show because the stuff that doesn't hit the news, nothing happens there as far as I can see. But it's like, yeah, it's a strong union and ironically it sort of does not protect the people, but it's the police, right? Like who watches the watchman? Who will police the police? When the police does something wrong in the United States, it's sent to internal affairs and you have police declaring police to be innocent, right? It's strange. Yeah, you need a a different government body that... You need an independent body mm. to investigate these cases obviously like that that's not even well, that's clearly what's needed but there's so much opposition to it and part of it is the strong policeman unions mm. and also, of course the extreme support they get from the political right in the US yeah and they've now gone out and supported Donald Trump as well no big surprise there no absolutely <laughs> not he's very pro-police and very critical of criticism towards police yeah I remember in a speech he said like why do they lower their heads when they get into the police car? They should just bang them against the door. 
Oh. <laughs> it's like, is that the main like thing you got to say about Felice? That's strange, dude. That's strange. Mm. I thought it was innocent until proven guilty, but clearly not. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> That's coming from the president, right? Mm. We were talking about language before. You know, there's this summer, there's a, kind of a new um, term, like uh, a Karen. You familiar with this? Um, yeah, I think most people have heard about yeah. Karens now. Which is, yeah, no, like a, a privileged white female who causes a ruckus for other people. Yeah, like calls the police on children with a lemonade stand or calls mm. police because she meets a black person or mm. yeah, yeah, just being a huge bitch. Mm. That's a real phenomenon and, and something that's really disturbing. But I have an issue with using language like that. First of all, just attaching a name to it is kind of stigmatizing to the name itself, which is unpleasant. But it's also a kind of group dynamic and hierarchy that to me, it's kind of poisoned at the well a bit. Yeah, like I have an issue with it mainly because the only Karen I really know is uh, Karen Kilgareth from My Favorite Murder, which is one of my favorite true crime podcasts. Mm. I really like her. She's like a super funny comedian yeah. and just a great person. And so like that's what I connect with the name I, I keep seeing like Karen. Yeah. So, but at the same time, I don't know. I don't have a problem with demonizing these people using their privilege mm. because the genuine problem. I agree. It's more like the way they use the term that I find um, problematic in a sense. Yeah, you should write a letter. You should channel your inner Karen and demand <laughs> change. <laughs> yeah. This clip of the woman who had to put a chain on a dog and she called the police. Uh, that was so unpleasant. Yeah, it's horrible, but you see more and more of these people being called out at least. Yeah. I, like that's, that's good. That's a good side effect of this. Well, not side effect, intended effect, I guess. Mm. Uh, of course, that sort of part of the whole canceling culture, like mm. that's a whole debate too. Um, it's a weird climate we're living in, like socially on the internet. It's weird, weird times. Mm. And I think maybe that's it for today. So thanks for joining our little discussion. So have a nice time. And have a nice uh, life. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.